Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode recorded while I was away in the States, Cassia speaks to the novelist Sarah Baum and she's going to tell you a little bit more about what that was like. Yes, so I spoke to Sarah in the offices of um, her publisher in London and I found it really interesting talking to her because her novel, or her new novel I should say, A Line Made by Walking, um, it, the character, the, the lead character in this is incredibly vulnerable and I found it very interesting that um, Sarah too was, was very um, candid and vulnerable about some of the um, grittier experiences of, of being, of her experiences of being a novelist, um, both financially, um, she's, she's definitely really struggled with that despite the success of, of both her novels, um, and also her desire um, and craving for recognition um, for, for both her novels and her, her writing, which I found, I found very um, honest um, and I was very surprised by the honesty and I hope you are too. Yeah, I think from listening to this myself, again, really the thing that shines through is her candour about finances, which is something we all wrestle with, but also the other aspects of of aspiring to be a writer. Uh, And we should say finally that um, although she's published in Ireland by Tramp Press in the UK, she's published by William Heinemann, who are also publishing my book. So uh, important to have that disclosure in. Uh, We really hope you enjoy the episode. So your second um, novel has has just come out. Yes. Um, and, and you're still living in the same place where you wrote it and also wrote the first? Uh, not really, um, but not far, the same part of the world. Um, the first book was very much set in a, a specific place um, in Cork Harbour, which is mm-hmm. down south. And now I live more sort of around the west west side of uh, the coast. Um, but it was... It, it was uh, I thought that I'd disguise the first place that... Where Spill Simmer, my first novel, set in this village. Um, and a sort of important atmospheric part of the village was there was an oil refinery on a hill kind of behind mm-hmm. the village. And it had all these sort of twinkly lights at night and this chimney. And uh, I, I assumed, I didn't know that it was the only oil refinery in Ireland. <laughs> so I described this oil refinery and I'd be like, no, I didn't, I never said where the village was. And they were like, we all knew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and besides, you lived there. <laughs> so. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Um, so can you, um, I started at the end and I should have started at the beginning. Can you tell me about how you came to be a writer? Because obviously your first ambition was not writing no no it was visual art when I, I went to art school um, I do remember like as a kid sort of having they were both a big part of my life as in we my mum used to give us these school copy books and I think this is an anecdote I actually recycled into the book but <laughs> she used to give us these school copy books and uh, and we would draw pictures in them and then we would write stories underneath the pictures so for me the two were always like the same thing in a way I drew yeah. pictures and I wrote stories and um uh, now I think there are courses in Ireland that you can study creative writing, you know, at undergraduate level. Um, I'm sure it's the same here, but a couple of years or when I would have gone to college, uh, that wasn't an option. So I would have been either studying English literature or studying visual art. And I always just really wanted to be making stuff and you know, narcissistically, you know, be the creator and yeah. <laughs> not, not an academic or sort of facilitator um, and so I went to art school and then the writing came about later on you know as often art, art students do it's very hard to keep working after college and I was um, like sculpture department so mm-hmm. suddenly after college I didn't have a studio space I didn't have technicians I didn't have tools or materials and so I started working in art galleries um, and then that kind of led into writing about art so criticism mm-hmm. but not not terribly difficult criticism now. Um, 
and that that then led me I think that the criticism got published quite quickly mm-hmm. um, and I remember thinking oh well maybe this is maybe I should have been writing you know maybe yeah. this is what I'm good at because at the same time I was making art and trying to show art and not really having any luck and um and I was, you know, sort of getting on. I think I just desperately wanted to be brilliant at something. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> this makes me sound horrible, but, <laughs> but you know, I was, I was in my early 20s and that was how I felt. Who doesn't want to succeed at something? I don't think that's anything to be ashamed of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, this is very relevant because it's, it's where the book comes from in a big way as well. Um, and, and then I thought I'd always, always read an awful lot of fiction. My mum and my grandmother were big, big readers. And so I would have been reading literary fiction probably from my teens and uh, and that's what I love to read so I thought if, if fiction is what I love to to read why don't I try writing it mm. um, and then <laughs> the rest is <laughs> the rest is obvious I suppose yeah. I tried writing it it went down okay um, I did a master's in uh, creative writing in Trinity College it's, it just was that down. the first sort of step where you like right okay art isn't happening for me so I'm going to go and do the creative writing course or had you started kind of writing short stories I know you've, you've published it, some short stories I'd, I'd very I'd written practically nothing when I applied for the master's um, but I think it's kind of the habit of my generation um, and and the generations uh, under to just keep going to third level education yeah. and I mean it, this was also a time when uh, it's not such a good system now since mm. the recession in Ireland but you know it's free education so we don't have to pay fees mm. so like we, I didn't finish college with any loans and then I went I could do a master's with mm-hmm. I could actually got money to do the master's as opposed to having to pay for it um, so I, I, it was just it, it was kind of natural to just do another college degree and I had but I'd barely written anything and I put a portfolio together and I thought sure if I get in you know I'll apply with the portfolio if I get in then it's chance and then it's destiny <laughs> and I got in so <laughs> do you think that's a mistake of our generation I did the same I went back to do a masters um do you think that's a mistake of our generation or do you think that's natural that we need sort of we need to feel that we have the piece of paper that says we can do something before we do it I, yeah I don't know it's like my my mum would, would always say that like you know it was um well, not so much my mum now, but like my 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 boyfriend's family, for example, he he was the first person in his entire family to go to college, um, and you know, and he would have said he would have come from a big family. This would be more typical, probably, of Ireland then, and um, and they sent the first, the two oldest children. So sorry, my two of my uh, my partners, an aunt and an uncle, would have been the children who were sent to college, and then the rest of the family, the you know, the the parents couldn't afford to send them to college, so they didn't go. Um, and and it was a big deal, you know. Um, whereas now it's a big deal if you don't go to college, yeah. you know. Um, and I don't think that's just you know me being middle class. I don't <laughs> I don't think I'm any particular class, but you know everyone does go to college yeah. at home. Um, and that's because of the the free education thing. But it's created loads of problems because now everyone is overqualified. So basically, there aren't enough jobs in Ireland to sustain the the qualifications of the general population and if there's a huge um a huge amount of people going overseas mm-hmm. um i don't know if it's, it's probably not similar here because no I, I think it's pretty similar and i think there's sort of this disenchantment with universal education mm-hmm. a little bit of course we all want it and we want everyone to have access to it but then when you, you come out of university you suddenly think oh now what <laughs> yeah yeah that's it phd <laughs> yeah what, what's the next thing i can get um so you um how soon after you finished writing your creative uh, how how soon after you finished doing the sort of um, the creative writing course did you start 
at your first novel or was it, were you sort of mulling the characters over while you were doing the creative writing? God, no, no, not at all. I, I was writing short stories and uh, I'd gotten, I'd had a few published. Um, there's a wonderful magazine in Dublin called The Stinging Fly mm-hmm. um, and they picked up a story quite soon and I remember thinking, oh yeah, they're so brilliant at this and then there was five years in between <laughs> um, where like, um, a certain amount of things got published but not much mm. and I, we moved and I was living um, in Dublin City to do the Masters and rents got very high and mm. have only gotten higher since and uh, I just couldn't, I was working in the art gallery, my boyfriend's an artist um, I was with him then, um, I'm still with him now um, but we, we just couldn't afford to live in Dublin mm. anymore so we moved, uh, moved to Cork to this little seaside village with the mm-hmm. oil refinery um, to this like real crap tumble down house that uh, it was over a hairdresser's um, again as depicted in the novel um, and it was on a seafront which was like we had these lovely romantic notions about living by the sea it was actually so close to the sea we got flooded like on several occasions <laughs> you were above a hairdresser yes well we had a kitchen and hall downstairs oh. so that would so it would come in it was it was reasonably untraumatic so we just have to sort of camp upstairs and <laughs> that happened a number of times and we had a horrible damn problem we'd no central heating for like five years and the rent was extremely cheap so it just it worked at the time but it was really like we were really living the like you know artists in our garret kind of thing yeah. uh, we'd very little money we were both on social welfare or Mm-hmm. The doll, you say the doll here as well, yeah. um, the scratcher, my boyfriend calls it. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's an Irish thing. Um, and I had various part time jobs, waitressing for a bit, and uh, again, art galleries. Um, and that was what wrote the book because uh, during this period, we adopted this, this one eyed dog that was just uh, somewhat loopy. And it, it was really just, I was really struggling at the time, I think, to do anything um, and felt like I'd failed at everything in life. And, uh, and at the same time, it, it, there was no sort of reasonable career path either you know because it was the recession in Ireland yeah. and there were no jobs and, um, so but that was what wrote the novel really it was just having all of this time that I didn't know what to do with and uh, writing a novel was as meaningless as anything else I could do with it in a way um, and it grew out of those experiences because another part of it was sort of rediscovering the countryside in which I'd grown up but for the past or for the former several years I've been living in Dublin and you know being educated and sort of forgot forgetting the names of wildflowers and trees and um, little animals that live in rock yeah. pools and all these kind of things so it and it, it was walking the dog that sort of slowed me down and made me look at the world differently mm-hmm. um, and then gradually the, the novel kind of grew out of notebooks and observations and because that's a, that's a that idea of kind of looking at, at things um, afresh, I guess, is something that comes out in the second novel as well. Mm-hmm. You know, seeing, like, noticing, noticing things and that kind of um, uh, the soothing, I guess, of, of looking at the natural world, even if it, even if it's most brutal and revolting sometimes. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's it's the mindfulness, which like <laughs> is such a thing now, but probably wasn't when I was first writing it. Um, and there's an instant in the book in which she she sort of tries to be to be mindful. Her aunt comes and tries to get her to meditate. Um, um, but it is, I think, you know, when you're in turmoil in some way inside, sort of looking looking slowly. Um, at, at the details of nature is, is hugely consoling and that's kind of what she discovers and that's something I very much explored in the first book as well yeah they're very sort of close both the novels you know but very sort of close to people's experiences um and you know the first novel is sort of between 
a man and his dog. It's really more about the dog, it seems, um, <laughs> in in a lot of ways. Was is that sort of was that sort of intentional or the dog would love that? <laughs> I I tried a few. Actually, initially the first draft of the book that wasn't a full first draft was um, from the point of view of the dog. <laughs> um, in in the grand tradition of I'm trying to think, I did a, I wrote an essay for the Singing Fire, in fact, about doglet because I was trying to sort of justify doglet as a genre. <laughs> I didn't. I thought people were just going to go, oh, dog book, and I really wanted to make it literary. So I read all of these these books and. Uh, uh, Paul Oster has Tim, a book called Timbuktu and that's written in the voice of the dog but kind of not successfully I thought mm. and I think I actually read that when I was trying to write in the voice of the dog and thought you just there's just too much a dog doesn't know and couldn't yeah. know um, and it just doesn't seem authentic enough and then I tried it in the man's voice first person mm-hmm. and um, it didn't it kind of didn't seem right either it seemed like it was just too difficult to to be that much I suppose in the head of a, a man in his fifties mm. um, and and so then my eureka moment was I realised he was talking to his dog, probably because I was spending a lot of time alone with the dog and talking to it. And it's a different form of expression. So you're not, you know, you have to articulate yourself enough um, to say it out loud. But then at the same time, you're only being listened to by something that's completely non-judgmental. And was that sort of difficult? Because obviously, like you say, there's a huge generation gap between, you know, in that case, between you and the kind of subject you're kind of imagining doing the talking and and you know and you've I think spoken before about the because you weren't born in Ireland mm. and so you've got this kind of um did you find it difficult to, to to find that voice I guess well yeah I mean part of it was um using all of my weaknesses to form the style you know as in like I I'm very wary of doing um dialogue um sort of in you know Irish dialects because there are you know any number of Irish writers that do that brilliantly like Kevin Barrier, Donald mm-hmm. Ryan, Lisa McInerney, um, and Roddy Doyle. I, and I thought there's no... I, because I didn't grow up with those voices around me, like my dad was from Yorkshire, mm-hmm. from Tursk, and, uh, and my mum, though Irish, um, isn't from where I grew up, you know, so doesn't have a strong accent. Um, and, and I just... I didn't have that. So I thought it has to be someone who doesn't... Um, who is Irish and has always been in Ireland, but who do- hasn't been surrounded by people or hasn't been talking to people, pretty much. Yeah. Um, and so that that was, in a way, what made him so isolated. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, people do talk in the book, um, but it's it's never the the voice in his head is what he's how he's come to speak because he listens to radio and he watches television and he reads, mm-hmm. um, but he doesn't have a sort of a very uh, um, distinct form of expression himself because he just barely ever talks to anyone. <laughs> and can you talk to me about the the, ti- the significance of the titles for both? Because obviously they're both quite unusual titles. The second one's taken from a work of art, and can you sort of what significance do the titles have for you for both? Of them? They're, they're both mouthfuls, <laughs> and I thought on both occasions. I was going to say it. I was thinking it. <laughs> and it's, I'm surprised I got them past editors because you know usually they're both the original titles that you sent. Um, well, actually, A Line Made by Walking um, was more like <laughs> a long process of discussion. Um, Spilsa Simmer Falter, where there was always, can't even say it myself, um, was always the, the title. And the, the book takes place over the course of a year and each of the, in, in four sections, and each of the sections is the season. So mm-hmm. Spill is for um, spring, Simmers for summer, Falter's for autumn, Withers for winter. Um, and it's proved untranslatable in any language. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it took ages to get it to work and then I was so pleased when it did and then um, A Line Made by Walking is an artwork by Richard Long 
and it's one of about 70 artworks that are mentioned, that are described in the novel. Um, in the voice of the narrator, she's basically trying to find meaning for her life in the only way that, well, not the only way that she knows how, but in, instead of uh, reading books, she's you know, art is her thing, art is what she loves, and so she's uh, it's testing herself. It's almost like an association on. game, isn't it? It's, sort of, you know, it's almost like a sort of the backbone for her thoughts. She's like, she keeps on slipping into these sort of habits of thought, these grooves you know going back to the familiarity of these artworks it seems yes yeah yeah like it's trying to find something relevant to her mm. situation that yeah yeah that was that was sticky at one point I, I caught out an awful lot of of them that that were slightly you know I kind of hammered them in because I was like that's a brilliant artwork I'm putting that in but it wasn't <laughs> but it hadn't quite tapered into her thought and I, you know yeah. eventually that kind of became obvious to me um but alignment so it was actually originally called after a different artwork and um I've never been good at titles for short stories and stuff mm. um so was sort of just fortuitous but definitely exceptional um and so when it came to the title the other title the other artwork um well, it was going to be, maybe I should say, it was going to be called 7,000 Oaks, which is an artwork by Joseph Boyce, which is mentioned in the book. That was the original title. Um, and then and people didn't like it. <laughs> um, and I was given reasonable, good reasons why. And so I thought, well, I, I, you know, if you're not good at something, then just let pick one of the other artworks. Mm. And I went through them all meticulously. And um, a line made, made by walking, even though it's a mouthful, actually meant it was most meaningful to the yeah. novel. Um, because it's about searching and about mm. repetition. It is, um, for anyone who doesn't know, um, it was probably the first most significant work that Richard Long made mm. and he took a train outside of London um, when he was still a student in London and he found a field and then in the field he walked up and down and up and down and up and down through the grass until there was a straight line left behind by his tracks and then he took photographs of it um, and it was it's a really important work of conceptual art you know because mm. it's, art can be um, can be anything art can be nothing um, and it's about from Frankie's point of view it's about searching and repetition and you know about what we leave behind or don't leave behind and um, so it just it made a lot of sense when um, when I eventually alighted upon it. <laughs> and you've um, talked a little bit about um, your kind of real fever to find um, the thing that you're you excel at and that you really want to be an excellent artist. And then you know you've since um, you've published the books they've done incredibly well and you've had you've had various awards and all that kind of stuff. And, and do you feel that you've sort of got what you wanted from <laughs> art in 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 literary fiction ah oh, no <laughs> well no it's funny I feel desperately that um, I've always found writing very hard mm. um, and maybe that's you know a, you know, maybe that's a good thing I don't think anyone finds it easy mm. um, but I've kind of hated the it's, it's like when I was making artwork I'd have an idea I never had any practical mm. skills I was horribly unskilled really as an artist um, so the most important thing was always the idea yeah. but you'd have an idea the process would be you'd have a brilliant idea eventually you know not naturally and then you'd just spend weeks and weeks and weeks working with your hands mm. making the thing whereas with writing when you sit down to write it's you're basically having an, an idea a minute kind of thing you know um, because everything is uh, you know you're making series of small it's just much heavier it's, it's much harder yeah. on the brain I think possibly if, if you've only but written <laughs> you yeah. don't realize um, don't realize how good you are um, so I, I and I still I, you know I still find it very hard um, and I don't know that I enjoy it in the same way that I do making stuff in the last couple of years that I haven't you know I've continued to make stuff 
but I haven't been making stuff with a view to making a career out of it. And so it's been wonderful, you know. Because your practice was sculpture in the end, or have you sort of continued with kind of making making objects or yeah yeah and I make I I make stuff like I did when I was a kid you know so it's still kind of like it's like a slightly sophisticated version of um rockets out of fairy liquid bottles Mm -hmm. or um you know I use like air drying or air drying clay Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh, and cardboard and uh uh, sort of whittle things out of balsa wood and stuff like that so nothing um and I don't I don't have loads of time of it but I usually have some kind of a project on the go and it's wonderful because I don't feel any pressure to succeed at it mm. um, but then another part of me feels that I've really let down that side of myself and <laughs> do you get any satisfaction from the book um, as an object do you have a very clear idea of it as, as a physical thing and we've obviously you're a maker and now there are you know there are, I saw dozens of these downstairs in the lobby and they're all over in bookshops I mean that must feel quite um, it's amazing yeah. in a very different way from art where you usually have just one thing or a, a small series now they're proliferating all over yeah, the world yeah that is and that is kind of amazing because um, with artwork it will never you know it's I, it's it's just one object and it can only yeah. go where I can physically carry you know in a way so the thought that it's um, that it's travelled so much and like Spill Summer was is I have it now in a couple of different languages and uh, mm. like one of them is Japanese and it's like you know I can't even it goes backwards like I can't even I can't I've written books I can't even read and that's that's kind of remarkable so but it's I also feel a bit like you know the object in a way the object belongs to someone else you know my my manuscript was a word document you know mm. and um and part of the publishing process is that you 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 know, you, you give away the kind of the yeah. the right to, to package it um, and to make it an object. Someone else made it an object, I suppose, and uh, and someone else is, is moving it around the world. Mm. Um, so it's a different relationship. You kind of happen upon it, in a way, if you go into a shop or you see it in a window or something like that. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, no, I like that. I like that it's alone in the world, but uh, but it, I, I don't have any particular... I'm actually very easy about covers and stuff, mm. you know, um, because I feel that that someone else knows better. I see you've like got your own kind of copied with with with, with pictures of, of cut out words well, on it. This is because um, I have a smaller independent press in Ireland, mm-hmm. and they have a different cover. And then you know the US. I think the US are actually going with the UK cover. But this was the first proof that I got is mm. the UK one. And I was like, I'm just going to make a territory neutral cover because mm. you know the way with with a proof copy, you you yeah. like you write in it and stuff. Mm. So it has to be the same one everywhere I go. Um, but I don't want to seem that I'm favouring Heinemann over Trump or <laughs> the independent president, so stuck crap on it. Because <laughs> your process of actually getting it published was, was rather unusual. You didn't have an agent, you may do now, but you didn't when you first got it published, from what I understand. So what was the, the kind of process like from that point of view? Um, well, uh, Trump Press are a small indie press. They're, they're doing brilliant at the moment. They're, um, one of their authors won the Goldsmiths last year, uh, Mike McCormick. Um, and they, they're just two women, young women I like to think, sort of around my age. Um, and uh, they kind of uh, broke away from, from the other publishers and they'd only just set up, they were, I was their fourth book. Um, so I sent, when I sent it out, I didn't have, an, I didn't really know what, you know, I didn't know how it worked. Um, and I didn't really realise, I suppose, what agents were for, I certainly do now. Um, and it got picked up by them very quickly. So I, I, I sent it out to a handful of small presses because I just didn't dream that it would ever make it to 
Penguin Random House. <laughs> um, and then it got published by Trump and started doing well, and I won a, a quite a significant Irish short story prize in between. Um, and so that kind of, you know, it's all good press. Mm. And, um, and, then, uh, and then Lucy Luck came on board um, as agent, and then it sold on to... Um, to Jason here at Heinemann and, uh, and that's it's becoming quite a thing actually with Ireland um, Kevin Barry and Colin Barrett and um, writers who would first publish with a small press house and then um, sell on rights overseas um, so it's just it's great that it can happen because yeah. I can still you know be a part of both yeah. Um, were there, were there, I mean, with the first initial um, sort of edit, was that a fairly smooth process? Were there big changes that were required from from Trump? You know, your initial editing process. How was that? It's, I've always found editing well. I suppose with both the books, it was quite a seamless process. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, there was. I mean, they edited it. Edited it. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> um, a certain amount. Um, but nothing, you know, I think with the first novel, it kind of has to be pretty much ready to go, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Or people won't, you know, in the current market, people won't touch it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second one, it was it was kind of more of a team effort, I suppose, because there was a US editor and, mm-hmm. and Trump in Ireland and then, but Jason kind of, you know, um, took the lead with it. So it was still really just like working with one person. So, yeah, so no, it's been okay. I think I've been lucky in terms of editorial processes. Yeah. And has, you know, what role has um, your agent played and has she, you know, how have you found that relationship? Um, Lucy's brilliant. She, she seems to handle most of the Irish writers. So like... <laughs> Um, so she comes to Dublin quite a lot, which is brilliant. Mm. And um, and then that was mostly selling on rights and stuff. Mm. And um, just, you know, the boring paperwork side of things that mm. I couldn't have dealt with anyway. Um, but no, she's she's brilliant. She uh, she came over to, to Dublin last week for the, um, the Irish launch, which is just, I think, completely different to... It's just everyone goes to the pub and there's like a party. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> it's very, it's very laid back, but it's such a small scene mm. as well. Um, but it was really great to have, um, uh, to have people from London over. Um, it's, you know, it seems to be working well. It was something that I worried about. One of the things that we kind of try and cover um, with Always Take Notes, which is the sort of live event and podcast, is um, we try and talk a thing about things that people don't generally know when they're sort of starting out or they might not know if they're in a different sort of area of the publishing industry I know from my point of view I was woefully ignorant of about you know how the agent relationship should work um how to you know get published the publicity that come afterwards I mean what of the what are the things that have really surprised you and that you just like wow I and you, you feel like, wow, I really should have known that, or I really wish there was just like a helpful website that would have told me this. Yeah, yeah. I wonder, do creative writing masters mm. do that? I do remember we did a, a module that was like the author of the book in the marketplace, which did kind of, you know, give us a grounding in agents and editors. But I remember being like the boring module that I just don't do it on. <laughs> and then like five years later, when I actually had a book, I couldn't remember any of it yeah. anyway. Um, but I, I mean, definitely the whole marketing side of it, I find kind of mad I hadn't expected that um as much I suppose because you don't really kind of go into it never dreaming that that a book will ever get Mm. published let alone do well so you don't think about um having to stand up in front of people and and talk and present yourself and yet you know a part of me kind of (laughs) hates that because it's you know it's the kind of like oh I have to sell my thing like it's like it's a consumer object Mm. and another part of me is very pragmatic about it and Mm. like you know I'm I am making money from this this thing so in a way it is 
a consumer object. Um, and part of the kind of deal is to, to, to bring it to people. You know, I, um, some guy was taking my picture there, a photographer, the other week, and he was describing a guy, um, a crime writer, and it was his first novel. And, uh, and the photographer had done a session with him a couple of years ago. And, um, and he was like, the guy was like, I'm not having my picture taken. It's, it's about the book, you know. And that's, you know, really, and he, the photographer had just said, that's you know that's you and like do you know how many books come out every year pretty much um it is part of it's part of the thing if you want to if you want to sell books i think i've just kind of had to swallow that um and i mean that's um, that makes me sound so ungracious i mean i really don't mind doing things like this <laughs> the bit that i hate is hearing them back afterwards yeah. or just even leaving here now <laughs> i do because i want to know who i have to like apologize to <laughs> a real hurdle for me becoming a journalist was recording interviews and then having to listen to them and transcribe them because i hated my voice so much i wouldn't be able to bear it. i listened to for about 30 seconds and like, oh, that's enough <laughs> stop <laughs> which made transcribing a lot longer and fiddlier than it should have been and then how do you find the other side of things since your book has come out i I remember being given a questionnaire, as I'm sure you were, about what kind of things, you know, you'd be happy to do as an author, you know, like, you know, would you like to do interviews, would you be happy to do radio TV, and by that stage, you know, you've, I mean, for you, having written a novel, you'd obviously written the whole thing, but for me, it was non-fiction, and oh, so, you know, I'd written a pitch, and, and the, the deadline and the, the whole book was, was still kind of quite a sort of a future thing and uh, so actually when you when you come down and, and really do start doing those interviews and things like that it's a bit like oh well yeah I mean I mean I know I agreed to this but I hadn't really and I you know hadn't really seen it coming <laughs> in yeah, a stupid way <laughs> yeah that's I felt that as well it's kind of like oh I didn't see this coming I, I, I just didn't think it would be successful you know yeah just have to worry well you can't that. imagine it would be because <laughs> especially because um, I, I, mean, I used to work um, you know you used to work in art galleries in the restaurant I used to work at um uh, a sort of a book uh, part of a, the book section of a, a magazine and we'd get sort of two big sacks full of books every single day for mm. review and you know then I was so callous with them I just like empty them out on the floor and sort them into, into you know piles by publication month and now the thought of, of, of my poor book being just <laughs> those sacks <laughs> horrifying I want to go around to my old workplace and to all the other book offices and be like treated gently <laughs> well that so seems so I think it seems so ungrateful then if you go well I'm not doing interviews I don't yeah. like talking to people you know I don't like my voice so so even though I don't like my voice or, <laughs> you know it's I you feel incredibly lucky to that anyone gives gives a crap to be mm. honest you know um cares enough to, to to want to talk to you in the first place and so <laughs> it seems like um critical you know you've, you've had quite a lot of um good publicity and from you know from very early on with with both your novels you had um, i think it was joseph o'connor who wrote a really sort of positive review in ireland i mean how have you found you having done a bit of criticism yourself art criticism yourself how have you found um reading the reviews i've had a really soft ride with will simmer like um pretty much everything was positive and I don't think that's I think with the first novel I get the impression that people will either ignore it mm -hmm. if it's no good or if it's good they'll review it mm -hmm. but um and so you're more probably more likely to get good reviews or no reviews I think most people have kind of agreed when I say that um but with the second novel it's um like I was I was just saying to someone this morning like with the first novel it was like I remember sitting down with 
the Irish publicist um, weeks in advance and he was like okay we're going to try we're going to really try to get like you know the Irish Times to review it and whereas with this it's like everywhere is reviewing it you know you don't even have to try um and but then at the same time people have a certain expectation because the first one they're reviewing it anyway so people are bound to not like it you know that's mm-hmm. just the nature of the game um and I mean I'm only in the at the beginning of it now but just this weekend with reviews and stuff um I I don't think I mean I mean I'm very you know I I expect that there will be more uh more that the reviews will be more mixed and they have been a little bit I mean they've been good good enough so far um there's still still quite quite a few of the English ones to come um, and I am horribly worried and just horribly, I mean, I just felt queasy all weekend mm. um, because you can kind of tell yourself that you don't mind as much as yeah. you want, you know, but really, yeah. um, and any little thing, like there was like, there was one in the Times um, and uh, I I read it and I was like, oh no, it's falling <laughs> and, uh, and it was devastated. And then someone, uh, a couple of people, just people I know in Ireland, friends, had sort of tweeted another great review for Sarah Palmer in the Times. I'm like, really, really? Is it? You know, you're you're super sensitive, like extremely sensitive. So um, in it, in what was broadly a, a good review, you'll pick out the one thing that um, that gets under your skin. And I mean, really, like I could write my own crap review of both of the books. So you kind of know what's you know it when people touch those sort of sore points where you kind of know that yeah that's actually (laughs) I was worried about that as well um Mm. that's actually and that's something else I found to go back to your earlier question that the hardest thing is um sort of having to stick with your book Mm. because the publishing industry is so slow so you know there's a good chance that you'll have finished it a good year before it's even published and at that time you're not sure if you know you would you would write a completely different Mm. book you know um you've had time to worry over the details and kind of Pull at, the, pull at the loose threads. Yes, yeah, yeah, and re- slightly regret this, and slightly, and then by the time it comes out, you're just going, "Please let me get away with it." Please let me. <laughs> Always a good mentality to have that when you're going into an interview. Just like, I hope they didn't notice whatever it was and chapter thing. Yeah, yeah, don't mention thing and chapter thing. <laughs> but uh, no, it's it's quite a it's quite, it's definitely a, an odd um, process. But how obviously you've spoken sort of quite openly about. Um, you know, being on the dole um, and the sort of the you know the lack of of money in the arts um, and you know the the dreams of um, selling millions of copies and, and making a fortune are, are definitely you know few and far between. Um, so, what what would you be your advice and and what would you say sort of on the on the finances of writing a novel? Or two. Yeah, yeah. It's funny actually. That's very topical at home at the moment because Donald Ryan, who's one of our, mm. um, probably one of our best known and most successful writers at the moment in in contemporary terms and just in terms of the countries that he sells in and the the numbers of copies that he sells. And uh, he did an interview there about two weeks ago. And uh, he used to work in the civil service. And uh, he's he then gave up his job because his writing was doing well. And he's now actually going back to work in the civil service because he's he's just realised that he can't <laughs> he can't sustain it. Um, and now I mean he does have he has two children um, in education and you know it's a different uh, life to mine I mean my, my attitude is very much any money that comes from it I just 
try to make it last for mm. for as long as I can. Um, I mean, at the moment, I'm kind of living the dream in that I'm able to live off my writing. But then, like, I couldn't live in London off my writing. Mm. You know, it's 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 circumstances, um, and so uh, we we kind of live in the middle of nowhere. Um, my boyfriend's an artist, so that's <laughs> that's no help to me. And that's the, and I know I'm sure everyone says this, but like a spouse with a salary would be would be the probably the best form of advice. <laughs> <laughs> Just some kind of regular income. Mm. Um, but yeah, just trying to make it last. And I mean, I know I've already made certain choices in life and will continue to. Like, I'm, I'm never going to have kids. I'm probably never going to have a mortgage. Um, I, I drive this kind of clapped out van. And, you know, these. I just desperately want to be able to not get a, get a real do- job, get a day job. Mm-hmm. Um, that's about the height of my ambition, um, you know, money-wise. And do you think that's going to be possible with the, with the books that you're, that you're writing? And, and also because you've recently discovered more fellowships and, and things like that, sort of alternative sources. Yeah. Are they yeah. helpful or are they kind of um, a dream rather than a reality as well? They're a funny thing, actually, because um, it, they're, they're a dream in a way, but it's kind of like the more the people who really need them don't get them because you need to be already established and to be seen to be winning prizes and publishing. And, uh, uh, you know, at which, you know, if you win the Booker one week, you're probably going to be eligible. You're probably going to get a grant the next week, you know, which is kind of mad because you don't need it because you won the book in the problem. But, you know, that's the way it works. Um, so, no, I mean, I'll definitely be like, pursuing as many of those opportunities as possible. But what I won't be doing is like writing a book that I think will sell, you know, because because I've because the chips are low or writing a book because, you know, I'm really not I'm not writing another book and unless I feel desperately compelled to unless um, unless something obsesses me or unless it's a project that I could actually you know care about and see to the end um, because I think it's transparent if you don't you know um, and that's certainly not a, a good financial move I'm sure but <laughs> would you go back to writing short stories you know sort of in the meantime if, if another big idea didn't occur to you or have you already got another big idea um, I'm no. I mean, the next project I've already said this a few times, so I better stick by it. Is, is sculptural. I want to finish um, some art things. Um, I suppose while I while I can, while I don't have to have a day job, um, and see if they can go into the world in some way. Um, and and then with short stories, no, you know, short stories became like phenomenally difficult to me as soon as I wrote a novel. <laughs> and I think I've heard other people say this. It's you start off with short stories because you think they're short. Mm. beginning middle and end um and since I wrote the novel it's just it just it, short stories have to be so um so carefully put together you know every element has to work in a in a novel you can waffle and it's mm. and it's kind of easier so I haven't I've barely written short stories or just written a couple of quite short ones um and I mean that's yeah yeah so I don't think unless and um, unless a great idea and a great way of um, seeing the idea through comes to me. I won't. I won't be churning them out. That's for sure. <laughs> and with um, creative writing, one piece of advice people are often given is to kind of really um, know their characters. It seems like in um, in yours there are elements of autobiographical. You know that there are sort of autobiographical elements. But have you sort of done the whole thing of writing binders of? you know, facts about what the character had for breakfast that day or whatever it is. No, I do remember actually one of the pieces of advice that I got in my master's was, yeah, you have to, like, you have to know everything about the character, what he had for breakfast, third cousin once removed, even if, like, you know, you never actually, um, if you never actually mention any of that. But I've never, I'm not good on characters. Like, I don't, everyone's kind of a, a version of something true. Um, I shouldn't say that, but I think an awful lot of everyone's characters mm. are. 
Um, so I, unless I sort of feel that I know a person anyway, I'm not. I'm not going to make up. I'm not good at making stuff up. Um, I don't have a brilliant imagination, <laughs> which is maybe rich coming from a writer. But um, I think I write very close to the truth anyway. And I'm not someone. I'm never going to write like historical fiction. Or um, I just don't. I just don't have the, the imagination. Do you think you ever write an unsympathetic character or, or a character who? Um, I mean, both your your characters seem very vulnerable and um, sympathetic. Uh, you know, in in various ways, and um, trying to, you're trying to understand them as a as a reader, and they're trying to understand themselves slightly as a character. Would you ever be able to sort of turn up on its head and, and have someone who just has none of that self reflection, or who people you know really didn't like but were intrigued or compelled by? Well, I think I do think that some people feel like that about Frankie, <laughs> um, as in it was it was interesting. Um, going back because the earliest sort of draft or earliest version of the novel was actually an essay that I wrote in a, you know a memoir essay mm-hmm. or creative non-fiction whatever they call it um, when I was about 25 or 26 and then the novel grew from that so mm-hmm. like it grew for a long time and it changed a lot and it became fiction um, but but like editing it then when in you know now in my early 30s or you know last year um, or rewriting it more than editing it was a uh, it was really there were loads of things that I was like, oh, you're so you know things that I really hated about the characters mm. and like you wouldn't say that and I really had to like distance myself from it now mm. as in like I would not say that now but you know Frankie is twenty five and when I was twenty five you know was that deplorable? <laughs> well, I think you understand that because you know that she's young and and struggling so I don't think you I mean maybe you, you judge her harsher because she's a version of you <laughs> yeah yeah and perhaps other people would because they're like oh she's you know. I think that's yeah there was real ah uh, you know she know and she does know that she's self-absorbed mm. um and I think that's uh that's a sign of you know that's that's the generation that she is as well um and yeah so I just hope I think you know characters so long as they're believable it's uh it's probably more difficult to write someone horrible um because always we're inclined to to want to be liked you know and to do things that um that make us in fiction as in life <laughs> That's an interesting challenge, actually. I need to write a short story with a char- an unsympathetic character. That's novel number three. I'm going to be thrilled. Everyone, you heard it here first. One more question I do want to ask, actually, now when I think about it. Do you um, set yourself kind of a daily quota of words? Obviously, you're, you're working from home, um, it, which must do you find that difficult and do you set yourself sort of a daily, are you strict with yourself about your, your word count? Not at all, no. Um, because, but then I don't really have any, um, you know, I don't really have any difference between art and life in a way, you know, as in working and working for me is reading and writing or, you know, looking at art or quietly observing the world or feeling things, you know, this is all kind of work in a way to me. So I don't, you know, I don't go on holidays. I don't change my routine at the weekend. You know, everything is all feeds into it in some way so I'm kind of always switched on and I think that's more important than word count the way I work anyway because so much of writing is smelling the roses and I mean I don't really get any decent material from sitting at my desk trying to think of decent material it all comes from you know from other places from from moving around like um and even though I live somewhere I find London like 
overwhelming because there's just so much stuff going on all at once like I was standing at the window and you can see people in other windows like doing stuff and it's just like mind-blowing because where I live there's like nothing and <laughs> there's there's cows and sea and fields and um but I think all of that you know if you don't you really you really have to pay attention and that's that's the most beneficial form of working um that's the only bit that really boils down to anything um so that's maybe a poetic note <laughs> you enjoyed that now uh, it's us again with a quick update from our lives um excitingly we're doing this live from cassia's shed which is now complete cassia apart from the construction of this extraordinary um edifice what else has been going on with you i feel like uh firstly no one cares about my shed as much as simon does <laughs> but apart from the fact that i now have somewhere to work which is great um i have had a horrendous week last week with um uh, four deadlines coming due all at once which was um, nightmarish but I'm sure very familiar to all of you who are freelance um, but apart from that unenjoyable week um, things are going well and I feel like I'm relatively on track for um, for my uh, my book deadline this October. Excellent. Um, I likewise have had various things going on. Um, discussions this week with my publisher about the cover for my book. Um, I've got a favourite. Yeah, Cassie has a favourite. A strong favourite. Um, favorite. Um, which is really interesting because from a journalistic background, <laughs> you're, you're used to having no say in any of this. So it's a bit odd to be asked your opinions, but it is exciting. Um, although I still work with that. And I'm also moving house. So lots going on with us. <laughs> and we look forward to having you with us next time. Bye. Like all writers, we love feedback, so do please find us on social media. On Facebook, you can just search for us at Always Take Notes. On Twitter, we're at Take Notes Always. And we're also on Instagram. And if you've enjoyed the show, we'd love if you could leave a review on iTunes. That really helps. Thank you. Bye.